He is the man I mean when I speak of a true Christian. What do I mean when I say the true Christian is happy? Has he no doubts and no fears? Has he no anxieties and no troubles? Has he no sorrows and no cares? Does he never feel pain and shed no tears? Far be it from me to say anything of the kind. He has a body weak and frail like other men. He has affections and passions like everyone born of woman. He lives in a changeful world, but deep down in his heart he has a mine of solid peace and substantial joy which is never exhausted. This is true happiness. Do I say that all true Christians are equally happy? No, not for a moment. There are babes in Christ's family as well as old men. There are weak members of the mystical body as well as strong ones. There are tender lambs as well as sheep. There are not only the cedars of Lebanon, but the hyssop that grows on the wall. There are degrees of grace and degrees of faith. Those who have most faith and grace will have most happiness. But all, more or less, compared to the children of the world, are happy men. Do I say that real true Christians are equally happy at all times? No, not for a moment. All have their ebbs and flows of comfort. Some, like the Mediterranean Sea, almost insensibly. Some, like the tide at Chepstow, fifty or sixty feet at a time. Their bodily health is not always the same. Their earthly circumstances are not always the same. The souls of those they love fill them at seasons with special anxiety. They themselves are sometimes overtaken by a fault and walk in darkness. They sometimes give way to inconsistencies and besetting sins and lose their sense of pardon. But as a general rule, the true Christian has a deep pool of peace within him, which even at the lowest is never entirely dry. As stated in the footnote, I use the words as a general rule advisedly. When a believer falls into such a horrible sin as that of David, it would be monstrous to talk of his feeling inward peace. If a man professing to be a true Christian talked to me of being happy in such a case before giving any evidence of the deepest, most heart-abasing repentance, I should feel great doubts whether he ever had any grace at all. The true Christian is the only happy man because his conscience is at peace. That mysterious witness for God which is so mercifully placed within us is fully satisfied and at rest. It sees in the blood of Christ a complete cleansing away of all its guilt. It sees in the priesthood and meditation of Christ a complete answer to all its fears. It sees that through the sacrifice and death of Christ, God can now be just and yet be the justifier of the ungodly. It no longer bites and stings and makes its possessor afraid of himself. The Lord Jesus Christ 
has amply met all its requirements. Conscience is no longer the enemy of the true Christian, but his friend and advisor. Therefore, he is happy. The true Christian is the only happy man because he can sit down quietly and think about his soul. He can look behind him and before him. He can look within him and around him and feel all is well. He can think calmly on his past life and however many and great his sins take comfort in the thought that they are all forgiven. The righteousness of Christ covers all as Noah's flood overtopped the highest hills. He can think calmly about things to come and yet not be afraid. Sickness is painful. Death is solemn. The judgment day is an awful thing. But having Christ for him, he has nothing to fear. He can think calmly about the holy God whose eyes are on all his ways and feel He is my Father, my reconciled Father in Christ Jesus. I am weak, I am unprofitable, yet in Christ He regards me as His dear child and is well pleased. Oh, what a blessed privilege it is to be able to think and not be afraid. I can well understand the mournful complaint of the prisoner in solitary confinement, He had warmth and food and clothing and work, but he was not happy. And why? He said he was obliged to think. The true Christian is the only happy man because he has sources of happiness entirely independent of this world. He has something which cannot be affected by sickness and by deaths, by private losses and by public calamities the peace of God which passeth all understanding. He has a hope laid up for him in heaven. He has the treasure which moth and rust cannot corrupt. He has a house which can never be taken down. His loving wife may die, and his heart feel rent and train. His darling children may be taken from him, and he may be left alone in this cold world. His earthly plans may be crossed, His health may fail, but all this time he has a portion which nothing can hurt. He has one friend who never dies. He has possessions beyond the grave of which nothing can deprive him. His nether springs may fail, but his upper springs are never dry. This is real happiness. The true Christian is happy because he is in his right position. All the powers of his being are directed to right ends. His affections are not set on things below, but on things above. His will is not bent on self-indulgence, but is submissive to the will of God. His mind is not absorbed in wretched perishable trifles. He desires useful employment. He enjoys the luxury of doing good. Who does not know the misery of disorder? Who has not tasted the discomfort of a house where everything and everybody are in their wrong places? The last things first and the first things last. The heart of an unconverted man is just such a house. Grace puts everything in that heart in its right position. The things of the soul come first and 
The things of the world come second. Anarchy and confusion cease. Unruly passions no longer do each one what is right in his eyes. Christ reigns over the whole man, and each part of him does his proper work. The new heart is the only really light heart, for it is the only heart that is in order. The true Christian has found out his place. He has laid aside his pride and self-will. He sits at the feet of Jesus and is in his right mind. He loves God and loves man, and so he is happy. In heaven, all are happy because all do God's will perfectly. The nearer a man gets to this standard, the happier he will be. The plain truth is that without Christ, there is no happiness in this world. He alone can give the Comforter who abideth forever. He is the Son. Without Him, men never feel warm. He is the light. Without Him, men are always in the dark. He is the bread. Without Him, men are always starving. He is the living water. Without Him, men are always athirst. Give them what you like. Place them where you please. Surround them with all the comforts you can imagine. It makes no difference. Separate from Christ, the Prince of Peace, a man cannot be happy. Give a man a sensible interest in Christ and he will be happy in spite of poverty. He will tell you that he wants nothing that is really good. He is provided for. He has riches in possession and riches in reversion. He has meat to eat that the world knows not of. He has friends who never leave him nor forsake him. The Father and the Son come to him and make their abode with him. The Lord Jesus Christ sups with him and he with Christ. Revelation 3 verse 20 Give a man a sensible interest in Christ and he will be happy in spite of sickness. His flesh may groan and his body be worn out with pain, but his heart will rest and be at peace. One of the happiest people I ever saw was a young woman who had been hopelessly ill for many years with disease of the spine. She lay in a garret without a fire. The straw thatch was not two feet above her face. She had not the slightest hope of recovery but she was always rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. The Spirit triumphed mightily over the flesh. She was happy because Christ was with her. In the footnote, John Howard, the famous Christian philanthropist, in his last journey said, I hope I have sources of enjoyment that depend not on the particular spot I inhabit, a rightly cultivated mind under the power of religion and the exercises of beneficent dispositions affords ground of satisfaction little affected by here and there. Unquote. Give a man a sensible interest in Christ and he will be happy in spite of abounding public calamities. The government of this country may be thrown into confusion Rebellion and disorder may turn everything upside down. Laws may be trampled underfoot. Justice and equity 
may be outraged. Liberty may be cast down to the ground. Might may prevail over right. But still his heart will not fail. He will remember that the kingdom of Christ will one day be set up. He will say, like the old Scotch minister who lived unmoved throughout the turmoil of the first French Revolution, It is all right. It shall be well with the righteous. I know well that Satan hates the doctrine which I am endeavoring to press upon you. I have no doubt he is filling your mind with objections and reasonings and persuading you that I am wrong. I am not afraid to meet these objections face to face. Let us bring them forward and see what they are. You may tell me that you know many very religious people who are not happy at all. You see them diligent in attending public worship. You know that they are never missing at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But you see in them no marks of the peace which I have been describing. But are you sure that these people you speak of are true believers in Christ? Are you sure that with all their appearance of religion, they are born again and converted to God? Is it not very likely that they have nothing but the name of Christianity without the reality and a form of godliness without the power? Alas, you have yet to learn that people may do many religious acts and yet possess no saving religion. It is not a mere formal ceremonial Christianity that will ever make people happy. We want something more than going to church and going to sacraments to give us peace. There must be real, vital union with Christ. It is not the formal Christian, but the true Christian that is the happy man. You may tell me that you know really spiritually minded and converted people who do not seem happy. You have heard them frequently complaining of their own hearts and groaning over their own corruption. They seem to you all doubts and anxieties and fears, and you want to know where is the happiness in these people of which I have been saying so much. I do not deny that there are many saints of God such as these whom you described, and I am sorry for it. I allow that there are many believers who live far below their privileges and seem to know nothing of joy and peace in believing. But did you ever ask any of these people whether they would give up the position in religion they have reached and go back to the world? Did you ever ask them, after all their groanings and doubtings and fearings, whether they think they would be happier if they ceased to follow hard after Christ? Did you ever ask those questions? I am certain, if you did, that the weakest and lowest believers would all give you one answer. I am certain they would tell you that they would rather cling to their little scrap of hope in Christ than possess the world. I am sure they would all answer, Our faith is weak, if we have any. Our grace is small, if we have any. 
our joy in Christ is next to nothing at all. But we cannot give up what we have got. Though the Lord slay us, we must cling to Him. The root of happiness lies deep in many a poor weak believer's heart, when neither leaves nor blossoms are to be seen. But you will tell me in the last place that you cannot think most believers are happy because they are so grave and serious. You think that they do not really possess this happiness I have been describing because their countenances do not show it. You doubt the reality of their joy because it is so little seen. I might easily repeat what I told you at the beginning of this paper, that a merry face is no sure proof of a happy heart. But I will not do so. I will rather ask you whether you yourself may not be the cause why believers look grave and serious when you meet them. If you are not converted yourself, you surely cannot expect them to look at you without sorrow. They see you on the high road to destruction, and that alone is enough to give them pain. They see thousands like you hurrying on to weeping and wailing and endless woe. Now, is it possible that such a daily sight should not give them grief? Your company, very likely, is one cause why they are grave. Wait till you are a converted man yourself before you pass judgment on the gravity of converted people. See them in companies where all are of one heart and all love Christ. And so far as my own experience goes, you will find no people so truly happy as two Christians. The footnote says, When the infidel Hume asked Bishop Horn, why religious people always looked melancholy, the learned prelate replied, The sight of you, Mr. Hume, would make any Christian melancholy. From Sinclair's Aphorisms, page 13. I repeat my assertion in this part of my subject. I repeat it boldly, confidently, deliberately. I say that there is no happiness among men that will at all compare with that of the true Christian. All other happiness by the side of his is moonlight compared to sunshine and brass by the side of gold. Boast, if you will, of the laughter and merriment of irreligious men. Sneer, if you will, at the gravity and seriousness which appear in the demeanor of many Christians. I have looked the whole subject in the face and am not moved. I say that the true Christian alone is the truly happy man, and the way to be happy is to be a true Christian. And now I am going to close this paper by a few words of plain application. I have endeavored to show what is essential to true happiness. I have endeavored to expose the fallacy of many views which prevail upon the subject. I have endeavored to point out in plain and unmistakable words where true happiness alone can be found. Suffer me to wind up all by an affectionate appeal to the consciences of all into whose hands this volume may fall. 1. 
In the first place, let me entreat every reader of this paper to apply to his own heart the solemn inquiry, Are you happy? High or low, rich or poor, master or servant, farmer or laborer, young or old, here is a question that deserves an answer. Are you really happy? Man of the world, who art caring for nothing but the things of time, neglecting the Bible, making a god of business or money, providing for everything but the day of judgment, scheming and planning about everything but eternity? Are you happy? You know you are not. Foolish woman, who are trifling life away in levity and frivolity, spending hours after hours on that poor frail body which must soon feed the worms, making an idol of dress and fashion and excitement and human praise, as if this world was all. Are you happy? You know you are not. Young man, who art bent on pleasure and self-indulgence, fluttering from one idle pastime to another, like the moth about the candle, fancying yourself clever and knowing and too wise to be led by parsons and ignorant that the devil is leading you captive, like the ox that is led to the slaughter. Are you happy? You know you are not? Yes, each and all of you. You are not happy. And in your own consciences, you know it well. You may not allow it, but it is sadly true. There is a great empty place in each of your hearts, and nothing will fill it. Pour it into money, learning, rank, and pleasure, and it will be empty still. There is a sore place in each of your consciences, and nothing will heal it. Infidelity cannot. Free thinking cannot. Romanism cannot. They are all quack medicines. Nothing can heal it but that which at present you have not used, the simple gospel of Christ. Yes, you are indeed a miserable people. Take warning this day that you never will be happy till you are converted. You might as well expect to feel the sunshine on your face when you turn your back to it, as to feel happy when you turn your back on God and on Christ. Two, in the next place, let me warn all who are not true Christians of the folly of living a life which cannot make them happy. I pity you from the bottom of my heart and would fain persuade you to open your eyes and be wise. I stand as a watchman on the tower of the everlasting gospel. I see you sowing misery for yourselves, and I call upon you to stop and think before it is too late. Oh, that God may show you your folly. You are hewing out for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water. You are spending your time and strength and affections on that which will give you no return for your labor, spending your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not. Isaiah 55 two. 
You are building up babels of your own contriving and ignorant that God will pour contempt on your schemes for procuring happiness because you attempt to be happy without Him. Awake from your dreams, I entreat you, and show yourselves men. Think of the uselessness of living a life which you will be ashamed of when you die and of having a mere nominal religion which will just fail you when it is most wanted. Open your eyes and look round the world. Tell me who was ever really happy without God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. Look at the road in which you are traveling. Mark the footsteps of those who have gone before you. See how many have turned away from it and confessed they were wrong. I warn you plainly that if you are not a true Christian, you will miss happiness in the world that now is as well as in the world to come. Oh, believe me, the way of happiness and the way of salvation are one and the same. He that will have his own way and refuses to serve Christ will never be really happy. But he that serves Christ has the promise of both lives. He is happy on earth and will be happier still in heaven. If you are neither happy in this world nor the next, it will be all your own fault. Oh, think of this. Do not be guilty of such enormous folly. Who does not mourn over the folly of the drunkard, the opium eater, and the suicide? But there is no folly like that of the impenitent child of the world. 3. In the next place, let me entreat all readers of this book who are not yet happy to seek happiness where alone it can be found. The keys of the way to happiness are in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sealed and appointed by God the Father to give the bread of life to them that hunger and to give the water of life to them that thirst. The door which riches and rank and learning have so often tried to open and tried in vain is now ready to open to every humble praying believer. Oh, if you want to be happy, come to Christ. Come to Him, confessing that you are weary of your own ways and want rest, that you find you have no power and might to make yourself holy or happy or fit for heaven and have no hope but in Him. Tell Him this unreservedly. This is coming to Christ. Come to Him, imploring Him, to show you His mercy and grant you His salvation, to wash you in His own blood and take your sins away, to speak peace to your conscience and heal your troubled soul. Tell Him all this unreservedly. This is coming to Christ. If you have everything to encourage you, the Lord Jesus Himself invites you. He proclaims to you as well as to others, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Wait for nothing. You may feel unworthy. You may feel as if you did not repent enough. But wait no longer. Come to Christ. You have everything to encourage you. Thousands have walked in the way you are invited to enter and have found it good. Once, like yourself, they served the world and plunged deeply into folly and sin. Once, like yourself, they became weary of their wickedness and longed for deliverance and rest. They heard of Christ and His willingness to help and save. They came to Him by faith and prayer. After many a doubt and hesitation, they found Him a thousand times more gracious than they had expected. They rested on Him and were happy. They carried His cross and tasted peace. Oh, walk in their steps. I beseech you by the mercies of God to come to Christ. As ever you would be happy, I entreat you to come to Christ. Cast off delays. Awake from your past slumber. Arise and be free. This day come to Christ. For, in the last place, let me offer a few hints to all true Christians for the increase and promotion of their happiness. I offer these hints with diffidence. I desire to apply them to my own conscience as well as to yours. You have found Christ's service happy. I have no doubt that you feel such sweetness in Christ's peace that you would fain know more of it. I am sure that these hints deserve attention. Believers, if you would have an increase of happiness in Christ's service, labor every year to grow in grace. Beware of standing still. The holiest men are always the happiest. Let your aim be every year to be more holy, to know more, to feel more, to see more of the fullness of Christ. Rest not upon old grace. Do not be content with the degree of religion whereunto you have attained. Search the scriptures more earnestly. Pray more fervently. Hate sin more. Mortify self-will more. Become more humble the nearer you draw to your end. Seek more direct personal communion with the Lord Jesus. Strive to be more like Enoch, daily walking with God. Keep your conscience clear of little sins. Grieve not the Spirit. Avoid wranglings and disputes about the lesser matters of religion. Lay more firm hold upon those great truths without which no man can be saved. Remember and practice these things and you will be more happy. Believers, if you would have an increase of happiness in Christ's service, labor every year to be more thankful. Pray that you may know more and more what it is to rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3, 1 Learn to have a deeper sense of your own wretched sinfulness and corruption and to be more deeply grateful that by the grace of God you are what you are. Alas, there is too much complaining and too little thanksgiving among the people of God. 
There is too much murmuring and poring over the things that we have not. There is too little praising and blessing for the many undeserved mercies that we have. Oh, that God would pour out upon us a great spirit of thankfulness and praise. Believers, if you would have an increase of happiness in Christ's service, labor every year to do more good. Look round the circle in which your lot is cast and lay yourself out to be useful. Strive to be of the same character with God. He is not only good, but doeth good. Psalm 119, verse 68. Alas, there is far too much selfishness among believers in this present day. There is far too much lazy sitting by the fire, nursing our own spiritual diseases, and croaking over the state of our own hearts. Up and be useful in your day and generation. Is there no one in all the world that you can read to? Is there no one that you can speak to? Is there no one that you can write to? Is there literally nothing that you can do for the glory of God and the benefit of your fellow men? Oh, I cannot think it. I cannot think it. There is much that you might do if you had only the will. For your own happiness' sake, arise and do it without delay. The bold, outspeaking, working Christians are always the happiest. The more you do for God, the more God will do for you. The compromising, lingering Christian must never expect to taste perfect peace. The most decided Christian will always be the happiest man. Chapter 11 Formality Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. The texts which head this page deserve serious attention at any time, but they deserve a special notice in this age of the church and world. Never since the Lord Jesus Christ left the earth was there so much formality and false profession as there is at the present day. Now, if ever, we ought to examine ourselves and search our religion, that we may know of what sort it is. Let us try to find out whether our Christianity is a thing of form or a thing of heart. I know no better way of unfolding the subject than by turning to a plain passage of the Word of God. Let us hear what St. Paul says about it. He lays down the following great principles in his epistle to the Romans. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. 
but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Three most instructive lessons appear to me to stand out on the face of that passage. Let us see what they are. One, we learn firstly that formal religion is not religion, and a formal Christian is not a Christian in God's sight. Two, we learn secondly that the heart is the seat of true religion, and that the true Christian is the Christian in heart. Three, we learn thirdly that true religion must never expect to be popular. It will not have the praise of man, but of God. Let us thoroughly consider these great principles. Two hundred years have passed away since a mighty Puritan divine said, Formality, formality, formality is the great sin of England at this day, under which the land groans. There is more light than there was, but less life, more shadow, but less substance, more profession, but less sanctification. Thomas Hall, on 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, 1658. What would this good man have said if he had lived in our times? 1. We learn first that formal religion is not religion, and a formal Christian is not a Christian in God's sight. What do I mean when I speak of formal religion? This is a point that must be made clear. Thousands, I suspect, know nothing about it. Without a distinct understanding of this point, my whole paper will be useless. My first step shall be to paint, describe, and define. When a man is a Christian in name only, and not in reality, in outward things only, and not in his inward feelings, in profession only, and not in practice, when his Christianity, in short, is a mere matter of form or fashion or custom without any influence on his heart or life, in such a case as this, the man has what I call a formal religion. He possesses indeed the form or husk or skin of religion, but he does not possess its substance or its power. Look, for example, at those thousands of people whose whole religion seems to consist in keeping religious ceremonies and ordinances. They attend regularly on public worship. They go regularly to the Lord's table, but they never get any further. They know nothing of experimental Christianity. They are not familiar with the Scriptures and take no delight in reading them. They do not separate themselves from the ways of the world. They draw no distinction between godliness and ungodliness in their friendships or matrimonial alliances. They care little or nothing about the distinctive doctrines of the gospel. They appear utterly indifferent as to what they hear preached. You may be in their company for weeks, and for anything you may hear or see on a weekday, you might suppose they were infidels or deists. 
what can be said about these people. They are Christians undoubtedly by profession, and yet there is neither heart nor life in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said about them. They are formal Christians. Their religion is a form. Look in another direction at those hundreds of people whose whole religion seems to consist in talk and high profession. They know the theory of the gospel with their heads and profess to delight in evangelical doctrine. They can say much about the soundness of their own views and the darkness of all who disagree with them, but they never get any further. When you examine their inner lives, you find that they know nothing of practical godliness. They are neither truthful, nor charitable, nor humble, nor honest, nor kind-tempered, nor gentle, nor unselfish, nor honorable. What shall we say of these people? They are Christians, no doubt, in name, and yet there is neither substance nor fruit in their Christianity. There is but one thing to be said. They are formal Christians. Their religion is an empty form. Such is the formal religion against which I wish to raise a warning voice this day. Here is the rock on which myriads on every side are making miserable shipwreck of their souls. One of the wickedest things that Machiavelli ever said was this. Religion itself should not be cared for, but only the appearance of it. The credit of it is a help. The reality and use is a cumber. Unquote. Such notions are of the earth, earthy. Nay, rather, they are from beneath. They smell of the pit. Beware of them and stand upon your guard. If there is anything about which the Scripture speaks expressly, it is the sin and uselessness of formality. Hear what St. Paul tells the Romans. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Romans 2.28 These are strong words indeed. A man might be a son of Abraham according to the flesh, a member of one of the twelve tribes, circumcised the eighth day, a keeper of all the feasts, a regular worshipper in the temple, and yet, in God's sight, not be a Jew. Just so, a man may be a Christian by outward profession, a member of a Christian church, baptized with Christian baptism, and attended on Christian ordinances, and yet, in God's sight, not a Christian at all. Hear what the prophet Isaiah says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, incenses, an abomination unto me. The new moons and sabbaths, the callings of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, 
your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me, I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear, your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 1 verses 10 to 15. These words, when duly weighed, are very extraordinary. The sacrifices which are here declared to be useless were appointed by God Himself. The feasts and ordinances which God says He hates had been prescribed by Himself. God Himself pronounces His own institutions to be useless when they are used formally and without heart in the worshiper. In fact, they are worse than useless. They are even offensive and hurtful. Words cannot be imagined more distinct and unmistakable. They show that formal religion is worthless in God's sight. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.